Welcome to Jesus Unmasked, an invitation to join a search for the living Christ in scripture and our lives. In Jesus Unmasked, we believe that Jesus would wear a mask during the time of COVID, and so should everyone. Yet in this podcast, we seek to remove the masks of exclusive theology and violent cultural lenses that obscure the truth that Jesus is unconditional love. In the unmasked face of Jesus, there is hope, acceptance, and forgiveness that frees us from fear that we may live into our fullest selves as reflections of God's love. We explore scripture through the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, and we use the Common Lectionary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Jesus Unmasked, our weekly Bible study where we unmask Jesus from all of the violent ideologies that we have thrust upon him and upon the Bible. And uh, I'm here, as always, with my dear friend and colleague, Lindsay Paris Lopez. Uh, hi, Lindsay. Hi, Adam. Hi, friends. Uh, we are here live on the Raven Foundation page and on the Clackamas United Church of Christ page. And Lindsay, I forgot to uh, tell you that my dog is here, too. Hello, Adam's uh, dog. Mac is over here doing, you know, his uh, dog stretch. What is that? Downward dog. He just did the downward dog. <laughs> and uh, here, I'll, I'll introduce him to everyone. Okay, there. Nope. Is that? Yep. Yeah. Oh, there he is. Yeah, you see his nose. There's Hi, Mac. Yeah, Mac is you so. You are a beautiful dog. He is a beautiful, beautiful dog. Hey, Mac, are you coming to uh, take over the podcast today? Okay, nobody. You all care about my dog. All dogs go to heaven. There he is. He's up here. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Uh, hi, Mac. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I forgot to put Mac away before we started, and uh, here we go. Um, <laughs> friends, we uh, welcome to the. We're going to be talking about the scripture passage for the second Sunday of Easter. Did you know that Easter is not just a day; it's a season. Mm -hmm. It's actually longer than Lent, which is great because um, I, I do like Lent, actually, but Lent is a very somber time, but the joy goes on even longer, which is, which is great, which is fabulous. How, do you know how many weeks Easter, is it seven weeks? Um, yeah, it? yeah. It's, it's yeah. 50 days, I think, because Pentecost is 50 days later and Pent... Uh, five and yeah, five yeah, ten and yeah yeah so um yeah i mean if lent is 40 days then um easter or actually easter you can look at it as 50 days or you can look at it as continuous because the lord is risen and that's forever so he's risen yeah. indeed did you <laughs> like that yeah yeah. Uh, yeah i liked that good job <laughs> I'm going to uh, put Mac in his spot because um, I have some uh, Kleenex on the floor under my um, desk and he's eating them. So yes, um, I'll be, that's gross. And you didn't need to hear that, but I'll be right back. <laughs> I uh, had to secure our trash cans behind closet doors and things away from our dog because uh, he was going to tear up the trash cans while I was gone. Oh, someday maybe someday know, maybe right? I'll get to introduce everyone to my dog. Um, he would 
he would be eating something on the floor of this room if he were in here. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, actually, yeah. So. That's what they do. That's what, That's they, what do. they do. Hi, Tanya from uh, Vancouver Island, BC. Uh, awesome. Good to see you. Um, okay. Nobody wants to hear about my dog uh, eating things that dogs shouldn't eat. So um, let's get to the second Sunday of Easter. Mm -hmm. It's this really great passage. Did you know that this comes up in the lectionary every year, every second Sunday of Easter? So we've talked about it before on uh, our Bible study podcasts. And uh, this might be like the third or fourth time we talk about it, which it's awesome. I love this passage. It's known as Doubting Thomas. So... Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things I love about this passage is like, it's like, um, do you think it's okay to doubt the resurrection? Um, yes. Yes, I do. Um, I didn't always think that though. So, okay. All right. yeah. Well, um, maybe we can talk about that a little bit because this is about doubting Thomas. It's also about got great stuff about forgiveness in it as well. So I'll go ahead and read it. It's. It's John uh, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And uh, here's, here's how it goes. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced uh, when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So when the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hands in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the door was shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. A lot of things going on in this passage, and there are a lot of um, 
stumbling blocks. There are a lot of things that have been taught to me and maybe to us that we need to unlearn about this passage. Um, deconstructing is one of the things that we do on this pass in in this Bible study, and we're also going to construct uh, something that I think is more beautiful, more uh, life affirming than many of the things that I have been taught. So here's one of the things right off of the bat that we need to be clear about. Um, in our passage that Lindsay, that Lindsay and I are reading from, uh, it's the New Revised Standard Version. And um, it says in the very beginning uh, that the disciples were there on the on that day. It's the day that, uh, it's the Sunday that Jesus uh, comes to Mary in the garden. So it's, it's on that same day. Um, and it says that they were in the door of the house and they had it locked for fear of the Jews. And this is something that we need to be very clear about because the Gospel of John uh, tragically has led to a lot of anti-Semitism throughout the 2000 years of Christian history. And what I want to be clear about is that when other translations will say not the Jews, but the Judeans. And I think that's a much better translation because uh, the Judeans refers to the power structures within Jerusalem at the time. So it's not the disciples, you have to remember, were Jews themselves. Uh, and there were other Jews, like um, you've heard of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a Jew who uh, asked for Jesus's body so that he could put it in his family tomb. So there were a lot of Jews who were sympathetic towards Jesus, um, who were not out to get Jesus. It was, it was the Judeans, the, the religious and political elite uh, that the disciples were afraid of, not the Jews in general. So try to do the best that you can. I know that we've been formed a lot in anti-Semitic readings of the New Testament. So we always have to be, it's like racism. We mm -hmm. always have to be vigilant against the anti-Semitism and the racism that infects the United States and the anti-Semitism that infects uh, much of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one of the, one of the really, um, one of the things about the way um, the Gospels and, and John might be one of the worst offenders in this, uh, emphasizes the Jews, it, it's, it, it de-emphasizes the role of the Roman occupation. Um, I mean, you know, if they were locked away, they probably were afraid of the religious elite, but they were also afraid of, of the Romans, the Roman powers that had just crucified Jesus. It really, really downplays the role Rome had. And also, I mean, even when you're talking about the religious authorities, part of, yes, they wanted some power for themselves, but part of the reason why Jesus was such a threat to them was because if Jesus if things got too far, the the Roman establishment occupiers um, would come down hard on yeah. everyone, everyone. Yeah. So it's so I mean they they could have been afraid of the of the um, religious elite within Judaism, but they were also afraid of Rome. And this doesn't emphasize that I think partly because 
when the gospel was written, um, Christianity was breaking away from Judaism and rabbinic Judaism was forming. And so um, there was a, there was a big contrast going on. And also, um, you know, you don't want the Romans coming down on you. So, I mean, they, this, they were locked away for fear, but it was written in this way also because of fear. That's something to remember. So, yeah. Yeah. Teresa says, so like, uh, in fear of the authorities. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that that's it. And as Lindsay says, it's religious authority and the religious authority at the time, uh, there was this, as Lindsay's pointing to, there was this relationship between the religious authorities and the political authorities, the Roman political authorities. So the Roman political authorities gave political authority and religious authority to um, the Jewish elite of the time who wanted to keep their power. And so there was this relationship, um, kind of co-existing relationship between the religious elite and the Roman empire. And they kind of tried to bolster each other up in this relationship that led to oppression. So that was like the reason that, that Jesus came to the temple. It was a, when he, when Jesus goes to the temple, which um, it seems to be the, the beginning of him going to the cross, uh, he's going to the religious and the political elite and saying uh, the status quo is not working. So he goes up and protests the status quo. And whenever you do that, the powers that be are going to do the best that they can to snuff you out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's when you get to Good Friday. Uh, and here we are on Easter Sunday still, um, and realizing that that violence and that murder um, doesn't have the last word. Uh, and that, I think, is one of the things that Thomas is really struggling with. I think the thing that Thomas is doubting is, is not so much maybe like uh, a resurrection in general, but that this Jesus whom he'd followed and was a total failure because he was killed could still be called the Messiah because the Messiah, the political leader uh, is generally thought to be someone who doesn't get killed by others. And so I think what Thomas is struggling with in all of this is, hey guys, we all saw it. We all know that he died. We all know that he was murdered by the religious and political elite. Give it up, right? <laughs> and I would be struggling with that too. Like you, you put your faith in this, in this guy for three years, uh, hoping that he would free you from uh, the evils of the occupation and he's an ultimate failure. So give it up, move on. I think that's what Thomas's message is. Yeah. Um... Maybe I, I think I think that you're right that he had a rather rude awakening um, from what he thought Messiah would be when Jesus was was crucified. But I also I also want to point out that while everyone is away in locked away in fear, locked up behind closed doors. We don't know where Thomas is, but he isn't with them. And, you know, just having enough courage to go outside, I think that shows, um, I don't know what it shows, but he had the courage to be outside. And I really think that's something. Um, I think before we go on, there's some comments. Um, Amber says, 
at conversations with people in my life about this, I always get pushback um, saying the Roman Empire didn't kill um, didn't kill Christ, but I disagree. It seems like a point of contention in my circles, at least. It's sort of both, though, right? Religious re elite and empire both. Yes. Yes, religious elite and empire both. Um, yeah, religious elite and empire both. I mean, I feel like for me, I want to emphasize empire because um, they had the... I don't know. I think Empire really did have the ultimate power. They could crush them all if they wanted to. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and Kenton makes the excellent point. Thank God we no longer have religious leaders cozying up to political leaders. <laughs> and that's, that's the point. This isn't about, like, um, Jewish religious leaders, right? This is also, this is about all religious leaders. This is about Christian religious leaders today um, who use power, uh, violent tactics um, to squelch those who buck up against the, the status quo, those who challenge the status quo, right? Like there were many uh, Christian, white Christian leaders who uh, were against Martin Luther King and, and his message. Um, so this is, this is the pattern that uh, that we see throughout history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so we've talked about Thomas um, not being there, and there being at least some courage in Thomas's absence from the room um and I, I don't know what he has faith in but he probably has faith that the movement um he, he might have some faith that things aren't all over um although he seems he he is he seems doubtful that um jesus can be the one to come back and continue to lead the movement. I, I think that, I don't know. I don't know if, if someone I followed and loved had just been brutally murdered, I would probably not just die, but brutally murdered. I would probably be terrified and in a kind of despair and lock myself up. Yep. And just the fact that he didn't do that shows me that maybe he felt that there was something more. And that's a kind of faith that he doesn't get any credit for, really. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, I'm sorry, Amber, I'm reading your comment, which I should do out loud because some people are hearing this on a podcast um, <laughs> without the ability to read. The Jews were still kind of in captivity at this time, like they weren't in bonds, but um, but the Roman Empire had come in and colonized them, and it wasn't with the Jews' blessing. They couldn't have done anything without the Romans' consent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then um, Holly says, I was taught that the symbolism of the water and the wine of Catholic communion represents the commingling of human and divine. Uh, Thomas seems to represent my human side. Yeah. 
yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Um, and the human side is, it's commingled with the divine, right? So it's, it's kind of inseparable. Um, um, yeah. As you're saying that, I'm reminded of that great mysterious statement that Jesus said uh, when he was on the cross, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A lot of uh, theologians will say that this is Jesus's moment of doubt um, in the in the love of God, in the goodness of God, um, or maybe some. I think even Peter Rollins says that it's doubt in the existence of God that he has. So uh, there's this um, there's this idea that to doubt if Jesus is God in the flesh, that to have doubts is divine god even has doubts <laughs> right um i like that I, I love that you know and i've also heard that jesus was quoting psalm 22 and he literally ran out of air but he was quoting a passage that begins in doubt but ends in a kind of faithfulness i like that too but the idea that jesus did doubt you know, I feel like um, Jesus had trust that love would win, but didn't know how. Mm -hmm. And if if he lost that trust in his dying breath, it didn't really matter because he couldn't really turn back at that point. You know, it's he he followed through to the end, and um, if he lost his trust after that. Um, probably anyone would and yeah. uh, love love still wins love still yeah. wins in the end and yeah. even if we lose all faith in that um so um yeah amber yeah. says he yeah he yeah psalm um, 20, psalm 22 starts off my god my god why have you forsaken me and then as it goes through you find that god has been with the psalmist and with the jewish people the whole time um even though we didn't see it or we were too, um, we, we were, we, we just couldn't see it in our pain and in our suffering, but God's there the whole time. So, and after Jesus um, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit, right? So God's, God's there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And anyway, Thomas says that he's not going to believe until he sees Jesus in the flesh and puts his hands in the mark of the nails, which is, which is gross, but he, he wants, he really wants a tangible experience. And, um, I don't know, I'm, I've started calling him trust, but verify Thomas instead of <laughs> Thomas, you know, we, we do need the example of verifying, I, we, we need it. I mean, we can't, we really can't take everything that's so hugely important and consequential to everything. I mean, we really, we really can't just um, take it without some sort of, <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about everything now, not just, not yeah. just religious matters. Yeah. Thomas wants to see the science. Yes. Yes. Thomas is, is, 
I don't want to say the first scientist. I'm sure there are plenty of other examples of science in the Bible of people experimenting and observing and learning through that. But yes, Thomas is a scientist. He has a scientific mind. And yeah, um, absolutely. And, and well, I was just going to say that all Thomas is asking for is to be able to see what the other disciples have already seen. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, he just wants to, he just wants to be included in on it. Yeah. Um, so I think that's fair enough. It is. It's yeah. absolutely fair enough. And he's the first to declare my Lord and my God. That's been pointed out that he's, that, I mean, it says the others rejoiced, but it doesn't give any words, but it has Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. Um, yeah. yeah, and this is another part of where we might deconstruct some of our God language and reconstruct it here in this passage as well. Because what does it mean for what, what does it mean for Jesus to be called my Lord and my God in this moment? Generally, what we think of as God is this all-powerful entity who can do whatever he wants to do because he's God, right? But what is the what what does God, if Jesus, if this resurrected Jesus especially is is God, what does God do? What are the first things that God does? What, what are the first words that are out of this God's mouth? Be with you. Those Peace be with you. Yeah. So much of Christianity is, okay, if you disobey God, God's going to come after you. You won't have peace with God if you disobey God. But what have the disciples just done? They've abandoned Jesus. They rejected Jesus, especially uh Peter and probably Thomas. Um, there's the beloved disciple who goes to the cross. We don't know who that disciple is. Might have been John. Um, interestingly, the only disciple in the Gospel of John who's called the one that Jesus loved is Lazarus, um, whom he raised from the dead. Um, so it could be that Lazarus is the beloved disciple. We don't know if Lazarus is in here or not. But the first words that come out of this God's mouth to those who had just abandoned him are not words of revenge or I'm going to come get you or um, I'm angry at you, but it's peace. That's what God is like. Yeah. I, I don't know if, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember who um, was the brilliant person who said this in a comment. Um, and I don't know if, if you're one of the people listening now, but uh, someone said that she thought that it was probably even Mary who was the beloved disciple. Could and have that, been. Yeah. That it could have been, you know, it it, it could have. And, I mean, it, it uses masculine language, and that was probably authors uh, later changing things to make it more patriarchal. But, um, you know, it, it could have been. We, we don't know who the beloved disciple is. Um, and... Um, so, so yeah. Um. Rosemary says unconditional, gratuitous, radical forgiveness. And that's, ex that's exactly it. And I want to get to um, this other part at the end. And I'll just, I'll just read it because it's a bit tricky. And again, it's one of the things we need to deconstruct. Um, 
it says this, uh, peace be with you as the father has sent me. So I send you when he had said this, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Yeah. A, a while up, um, Holly Blanchard, I think it was Holly. Yeah, Holly wrote a ways up in the thread, hanging on to the sins of others, let it go so you can heal. Yeah. That's what this is getting at, Holly. Yeah. That's exactly what this is getting at. Um, uh, Rosemary says that Father Jim Martin is going to write a book on Lazarus as the beloved disciple. Oh, interesting. Um, yes, and Mary Magdalene can be as well but one of those two, I think, um, Rosemary, thank you for this. One of the ways that ancient Christian tradition handled these, uh, these questions about like this kind of anonymous disciple um, is to say that they're anonymous or they are called the beloved disciple, but not given a name because you are the beloved disciple. You're supposed to imagine yourself as the one that is called the beloved disciple. You're the one who went to the cross with Jesus. And so it was an ancient way for the Christian storytellers to invite us to imagine ourselves in the story as one of these characters. That's beautiful. I hadn't heard that before. I love that. I love that. Um, and I also wanted to say with the... Um, you know, when Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I think he is saying, let it go so you can heal. I also think he's saying judgment is a human thing. You know, we think that only God has the power to forgive sins and to hold sins. And God does have the power to forgive sins, but God doesn't hold sins against people. So that's not a part of God. That is something that we do. And he's, Jesus is warning us, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. He's, he's saying, hey, you know, the power to retain the sins, to retain sins is yours. It's always been yours. That's not a blessing. Know that you've always had this power and it's, it's not a good thing. You're, the cycles of violence and revenge and anger and guilt and jealousy and everything will happen if you retain the sins of others like if you didn't think you had any role in that because god is more powerful that's that's not you know that's um that's not how it is judgment is a human thing i mean what he says is is very basic if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven if you retain the sins of any they are retained it's just a a equals a like identity property of of um gospel it's like it's so basic, but it's something we need to hear. Yes, and this is part of what we, part of the deconstruction pro process with this passage is that whenever we hear those kinds of passages about forgiveness being, um, being given or being retained, we instantly go to, oh, we're talking about God here. So if you don't forgive people, you have the power to keep God's forgiveness for um, in the divine realm or to share God's forgiveness. And I think that you're exactly right, Lindsay. Like the way that I see this, as you're saying, is on um, the purely human level. Because as you say, like God is already forgiven. Like when Jesus was on the cross, he prayed for the forgiveness. And what Jesus at prays 
Jesus receives. And Jesus was forgiving people for their sins long before he went to the cross. That because God is forgiveness. Um, and so when Jesus is saying, hey guys, go out and forgive people, because if you don't forgive people, they won't experience forgiveness and live in a way that's like, what does he say? Forgive seven times, 70 times. He's been, he's been preaching this and living this forgiveness throughout his ministry. And here in the resurrection, he's consistent with it. Like he yeah. doesn't change. He just says, remember guys, this is all about forgiveness. So if you go out and you don't forgive people's sins, they won't experience the forgiveness that that this that your ministry is all about. So go out and forgive. Yeah, and and um yeah. There's you know because I don't want to say there's a right and wrong way to read the Bible, but yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, you know, like like um <laughs> like I read it wrong when I read it through this lens of fear that was like, Jesus is giving this power to his chosen people and he's giving them the power to save and condemn. He's not because he's giving them the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is a spirit of forgiveness. So he's, he's saying, I'm giving you a spirit of forgiveness, go out and use it. And I think it's also crucial that he's speaking to people who need forgiveness, who have just abandoned him, who, you know, who need forgiveness themselves. Um, because it's very, it's very, um, it can be problematic to make forgiveness an obligation for those who have been really, really hurt. That's, that could be a problem. Um, you know, and I think what he's saying is if the world is infused with forgiveness, those cycles of hurt will be stopped in their tracks anyway. Um, so yeah, like, thank you for that. I always, whenever we talk about forgiveness, I always want to point out that the word in Greek is aphiemi and aphiemi means to forgive, but it also means to, uh, create space between. And so sometimes forgiveness is like, if, if, if like in extreme situations, um, sometimes forgiveness means creating space between you and the person who has harmed you or the person who continues to harm you and is caught up in a pattern. So sometimes forgiveness isn't like restoring a relationship necessarily. Sometimes it's just, as Jesus says, shaking the dust off your feet and moving on um, and maybe wishing the other person well, uh, but also creating space or boundaries um, between you and the other, if that's necessary. So yeah, forgiveness, as Holly says, can take time. Uh, mm -hmm. Rosemary says, I think when you forgive, you freely take on the hurt that another has done to you. It is difficult. Yeah, yeah, it can be really heavy. But I love what you said, Lindsay, that um, when Jesus comes to them and says, peace be with you, he's he's giving them the forgiveness that they need because they know that they have just betrayed this guy. And that's why Jesus, I assume, has to say, peace be with you twice. And then a third time when he comes back with Thomas, because he knows that they are feeling a tremendous, probably knows they're feeling a tremendous amount of guilt for abandoning him and thinking that he may come after them. 
I mean, I mean, my gosh, what would have been like if Jesus came in and said, you cowards, you abandoned me. Well, here's the Holy Spirit. Bye. Like, that's that wouldn't be giving them the Holy Spirit. That would just that. And then they, you know, they go out and hurt people if that's what if that's what happened. I mean, they take in the forgiveness and taking in forgiveness, I think, can be a little bit painful like painful but relieving it's like yeah um so yeah i think if you have a spirit of forgiveness i think most of the time it can cushion the pain that giving or receiving forgiveness causes it can be like a muscle that when you exercise it makes you stronger and and um even if there is some pain to it yeah. Yeah. Amber speaks to that. I've seen this verse used in very hurtful ways to manipulate people in fear by the church at times. This explanation makes more sense. Yeah. Good, good. Okay. That's what we um, Anything else about this passage? We are each worthy of his grace. That's, that is, thank you, Emily. I think that's, I think that's a good note to end on that we are all, all worthy of grace. Um, I mean, I mean, what Jesus is saying is even, even when you kill God in flesh, you are still worthy of grace. And if that's true, then there's nothing, nothing, nothing at all that, that, that can make us unworthy of grace. The disciples were not defined by the worst thing that they ever did. And neither are any of us. There's always, there's always forgiveness and there's always a chance to move forward from it. So thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, friends. I, Adam and I learn a lot from all of you and we're grateful for your, um, for your presence here and participation. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone. Uh, you can listen to all of our podcasts uh, on Jesus Unmasked at the Raven Foundation website, ravenfoundation.org, under our podcast section. You can also listen to all of our podcasts wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. And uh, we'll come back again next Wednesday at 3 o'clock Pacific, 5 o'clock Central for as we discuss Easter 3, the third Sunday of Easter. So we look forward to, uh, to seeing you then. Until then, everyone, God be with you. God bless you. Jesus Unmasked is produced by the Raven Foundation, where we talk about faith and mimetic theory. Check out more of our work at ravenfoundation.org. You can connect with Raven on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you liked this episode, feel free to share it with your friends or your enemies, because Jesus calls us to love them too.